You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, how we doing, everybody? Happy New Year. This is our first Sunday back, so new year, new series. Uh, Hope you all had a great winter break. Uh, What you just saw in that video was a reading of a passage we're going to be looking at, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Starting next week, we're going to be looking at that passage, breaking it down verse by verse and uh, applying as to like what it all means for our lives. We're not going to do that today, though. All right? We're not going to do that at all. Uh, What I'm going to do today is just uh, give us a picture as to why this series is going to be so good for us and why, as a team of pastors, we chose this series. So think of today as a bit of an appetizer, if you will, to whet the appetite. Uh, if you like it, then it's like, come back next week. If you don't like it, you should probably still come back next week because I think it's going to be really good. But here's why we uh, chose this series upon this rock. So something we've noticed, and I'm sure y'all have noticed, is that generally speaking, collectively as a society, we are not doing so great. I mean, can we agree on that? We're just not really nailing it in terms of like wholeness and health, in terms of categorically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, relationally. We're just not doing great. It seems like three or four years ago, the topic of mental health wasn't something people really talked about. And now, rightfully so, it's on everyone's minds to talk about that. Uh, It seems like most people would agree, generally speaking, we're just not doing awesome as a society. So what do we do with that? If this is the problem of overall collective unhealth, uh, what do we do with that? And based off of that question, you're going to get wildly different answers based off of how you deal with that problem. If overall unhealth and wellness are the problems, then what is the solution? And you're going to get a lot of different answers out there. Some people will say uh, the answer lies in self-care. If you just take care of yourself, then things will get better. Others will say you need to cut the toxic people out of your life. Other people will say you need to figure out what your truth is and live by that. Other people will say, you need to find a hobby and do that. Other people will say, you just need to drink more water and go outside more often. Other people will say that you need to just change the circumstances in your life. And if you just change the harder circumstances, then your life will be better. The point is, while all of us would probably agree that collectively we're not doing great, you're going to get a lot of different answers as to what the ultimate solution is going to be. And it's kind of like we're all drowning collectively, just desperate to find something that will keep us afloat. Now, as Christians, there's a lot of ways we might try to answer that question about why we are not doing well collectively. And the Bible gives a lot of explanations and images to help us understand how to think through this topic. But one that stands out to me is the image of the rock. Now, I'm not talking about Dwayne Johnson. I'm talking about Good. Uh, I'm talking about this idea uh, that the Bible does a lot, this image of a rock kind of all throughout scripture, this source of stability and security. So let me just show you one passage in particular. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount to sort of end his teaching, Matthew chapter seven. 
He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So this is towards the very end of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount sermon in Matthew chapter five through seven. This is one of the very last things he says in that. And it's sort of his mic drop moment. One of the last things he says, he's basically saying in light of everything he taught on that there is a way to orient your life in one of two ways. You can orient your life, you can ground your life built off of his life and his teachings. And when you do that, it'll be like living life on a rock where there is stability and security and peace. And on the other hand, there's a life that you can live that is outside of him, that it will be like you're drowning, where it's going to feel like sinking sand. It's going to be a life filled with insecurity and the like. Now, keep that in mind. And I have a picture to show you now. All right. Now, when I first saw this, I just thought, you know, one of the pastors just Googled rock or cave. I was like, all right, cool. But uh, what this is, this is an important geographic location in Caesarea Philippi in northern Israel. And this is the backdrop that Jesus makes a pretty radical statement about himself. It's in Matthew chapter 16. You'll notice here as well, there's this big rock face in Caesarea Philippi, and there's a big cave opening right inside. And at that time, people thought this cave in Caesarea Philippi was actually like the gateway to hell itself. So keep that in mind. That's really important as we read this next bit in Matthew chapter 16. So they're at Caesarea Philippi, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? So the son of man is this Old Testament figure in Daniel chapter seven, this person who is going to bring about God's kingdom once and for all to do away with sin forever and rescue God's people finally. And Jesus is saying, all right, who do you all think the son of man is? And then verse 14, you get their answers. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So at that time, there was sort of this thought that um, in the Jewish world, in the Jewish worldview, that the resurrection would happen. And when the resurrection happens, that would be like a sign of the end times that the Messiah has come back. And so the fact that Jesus was teaching and doing things that were similar to Old Testament prophets, they were starting to become this murmur around Jesus that maybe he is actually one of the resurrected prophets from the Old Testament to like usher in the messianic kingdom once and for all. So Jesus is asking, who do you guys think I am? And they all start saying like, well, some say this, some say that. But either way, it shows me the disciples don't really quite know who Jesus is supposed to be. And so he pokes at them a little bit in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, who was probably one of the oldest and in the group and maybe like the leader of the disciples, replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter makes this radical confession that prior to this, the disciples had not really said out loud before. Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God prophesied so long ago, who is going to bring the kingdom of God in once and for all. 
Then check this out, verse 17. Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So see, Jesus is doing like some... uh, this object lesson, this illustration, they are at this cave where people assume are the gates of hell, and he's making this statement. And verse 17 and 18, it gets really meta for a second. Uh, So track with me here. So Jesus, he's saying this while they are either right near or even on that very rock. Uh, Let's look at that picture again. Jesus is making this statement when they are either on this rock or very near this rock. He says, That's right, Peter, and on this rock. So he's saying this while near a rock, but also he gives Peter this new name of Peter. So prior to that, his name was Simon. Jesus says, your name is Peter now, which in the Greek is the word Petros. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And the word for rock is Petros. So again, Jesus is doing like some, he's doing some really meta heady stuff going on. He's like, yeah, we're at this rock and I'm gonna name you rock. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And some people get like really caught up in all of that and are like, okay, so what did Jesus mean? What is the rock exactly? Is he referring to the literal rock? Is he saying that Peter is the rock he's going to build his church? Is he saying that what Peter said is the rock that he's going to build his church? And I would make a strong case that what Jesus is saying is the rock that he will build his church upon is what Peter has confessed. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This faith confession that he will build his church upon. In fact, Peter will go on and he will give the first sermon ever to start the church in Acts chapter two. And Peter is not the rock. The rock is what he's confessing, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter is saying, you are the promised one. And that is the rock. You are the true king. You are the Messiah who's come to take away the sins of the world. You are the light in the darkness, the hope for the world. You are all I have and all I need. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the rock. And this becomes a defining moment, not just for Peter from here on out, but it becomes a defining moment for the disciples too. So prior to this, the disciples, they come from all sorts of age groups, as young as 13, as old as early to mid 30s. They come from different family backgrounds, different careers. They have different aspirations in life, just a complete hodgepodge of different personalities. And Jesus is saying, upon this rock, this is what's gonna unite you together. Faith in me, this is gonna bring you together as a family. Faith in Jesus as Lord of all, trusting him as the son of God. Jesus looks at Peter's confession of faith and he says, that's it, Peter. You are different now because of that. In fact, I'm gonna give you this new name. I have set you apart because of faith in me because what you said, that is the rock and I will build my church upon it and the gates of hell will never overcome it. And just so we don't miss the punch of what Jesus is getting at here, this place, this rock had huge implications back then. This literal rock they were standing on was an object lesson for how they are to live their lives from here on out. And here's what I mean. Let's look at that picture one last time. So back then, to stand upon or live upon a rock meant enormous safety and security in your life. So think about this. Imagine a flashback 2,000 years ago. You live in biblical times. Uh, Back then, the life expectancy was much shorter. So the average life expectancy was 35, which 
I'm 35. So back then I would have been very old. Not today, 35 is the new 25 for all I'm concerned. But back then, very short life expectancy. Wars happened all the time. Fights and battles broke out. Let's say you are living in a town and there's this foreign army on their way to fight you and burn your town down. And so you need to fend for yourselves. And there's this big rock that's like right outside of your town. What you want to do is you want to climb upon that rock because the logic was you could see the enemies coming from miles away. You could see how big the enemy threat was and you could go and report back to others. Not to mention if you have the high ground, as all of our Star Wars nerds know, if you have the high ground, it's a deep cut, YouTube that later. Uh, But if you have the high ground, then you are able to fend for yourself from any attack. You want to have this vantage point. Not to mention the fact uh, high, a high ground was a place of safety. In the same way, like if it rains in Columbia, you want to seek high ground, right? You don't want to be in parts of downtown or five points when there's a heavy rain coming. You want high ground because there's safety and protection. That's what it's getting at here, that Jesus, the rock, he is this source of security and protection. In fact, there's a famous line we read and sung about this just a few minutes ago, but David says this in Psalm 61. David says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. He's saying, God, I don't want to be left down here on the ground because when I'm down on the ground, I cannot see things clearly for what they really are. I can't see the enemy coming for me. I'm left helpless and on my own if I don't get up on the rock. So God, lead me, lead me up there where I'm safe from my enemies, up where I can see with clarity, lead me to something that is bigger than me, something solid to stand on, something that helps me see what you see. And I would argue that sometimes in the hectic pace of life, we sort of operate from the ground. And I hope I'm not the only one who feels that, but sometimes it sort of feels like you're in survival mode, like you're just shuffling from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, just day in and day out. And it's disorienting and confusing at times. You're dealing with all of the immediate pressing concerns and questions of life, like, uh, okay, what am I supposed to do next? Okay, am I going to get there in time? Did I make sure to send out that email? Did I meet that deadline on that project? Who's picking up the kids today? Am I picking up the kids? Can I make that happen? Did I remember to move the laundry over? Did I remember to do the dishes? Uh, sometimes I'm even like, uh, what day is it? It feels like a Friday, but it's a Monday. Okay. And sort of just thinking through that, And then if you manage to get past all of the day-to-day pressing questions, maybe it's like when you're drifting off to sleep, worn out by the day, you find yourself eventually asking those bigger questions in life. Like, is this what my life is supposed to be like? Am I the right kind of tired? Am I a good enough parent? Am I a good enough spouse? Why do I feel sad sometimes? Is my life fulfilling When was the last time I talked to God about all the heavy and hard stuff going on in my life? Why am I having more doubts than I used to have? How in the world do I think about all of these things going on in this broken world about me? How am I supposed to navigate it, navigate that and think through that? And how do I talk to my kids about all of that? But by the time these questions finally surface, you finally fall asleep and then you wake up and all of those immediate day-to-day questions pop right back up. My point is life on the ground can often feel chaotic and restless 
and directionless. And when that happens, you can end up wasting a lot of time over things that don't ultimately matter. Maybe over time you find life on the ground, living that for some time, you find that God seems distant when in actuality it's you who have grown distant from God. But there's another option, life up there, life on the rock where you can see more clearly, where you have perspective, where you have purpose and vision for your life that comes from God and it becomes the orienting principle to to shape your life around. So yeah, you go to bed tired, but you have peace about it because it's the right kind of tired. You're still sad sometimes, but you're processing that openly, regularly with God and with others. You still have doubts, but you're taking that to trusted community because you're operating from a higher place. You're living life on the rock. God is leading you to that rock that is higher than you, and you take the invitation. And life is still busy and full, but you have this perspective now that you didn't have when you were living life on the ground. I would imagine this is the sort of life we really want, but to be honest, there is a lot working against us. There's a lot that is hindering us from being those sort of people who operate and living life up on the rock. One of our pastors, he was listening to a sermon on Psalm 61, And the preacher was saying, he read that verse, he read the verse, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. But then his next line was this, he said, modern man believes in no such rock. And basically what he was saying is that modern society, modern people collectively, they see the world, all of existence, uh, just as it is. Like, this is it. There is no transcendent framework to give us ultimate purpose and meaning and fulfillment. What you see, what you can touch, what is right in front of you, this is all that there is. This is what philosopher Charles Taylor would call the imminent frame. There is no transcendence. All you have right in front of you, that's it. So in terms of what is truly right, what is wrong, in terms of like morality and meaning and purpose and vision, it's like... I mean, you're not going to get it from up there because there is no up there. It's really on you to figure it out. So good luck. And for us as Christians now, we have this odd tension. Christians, we've always lived in tension, but now living in this world, we exist where we know that there is a higher rock that is bigger than us, that gives us vision and meaning in life. But at the same time, we live in a context that for all practical purposes does not believe that a higher rock exists. And so now you have problems all over the place. For example, said one psychologist, and we've shared this recently, he said the average high school student today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. At the end of 2021, the U.S. Surgeon General declared, quote, a devastating national mental health crisis. One report recently said Americans are getting lonelier and lonelier, with one report saying one in seven men and one in 10 women don't have a single friend. That is wild. And in this context we live in, where many people don't believe a higher rock exists, people come up with their own theories and solutions as to how to make life meaningful and and manageable. So whatever you chase, whatever you orient your life around, hey, good luck. I hope that solves your problems. 
Some of the solutions might be, I don't know, uh, make your life about status or self-fulfillment or career or sex. Enjoy it while it lasts because there's really nothing at the end of all of this. There's nothing higher than you to give you meaning and purpose. So live your life as best you can and good luck. Or eat and drink and watch Netflix for tomorrow we're just going to die. In such a place where there is no higher category of meaning and morality, people might turn to politics as a pseudo-religion because there is no transcendent story to ground your life on. So find a political party where you can embed your life in this story and you're the good guys and the opposite team is the bad guys and whatever helps you sleep at night. But as followers of Jesus, we have this great secret. There is a rock that is higher than us that gives us meaning and purpose and reality and truth beyond what we see right in front of us. We know the one who leads us up to that rock where we can see the enemies against us, where we can see clearly what our lives are supposed to be about and what we're supposed to do and who we are and what a stabilizing thing that can be when we ground our lives on the rock and how we can invite others into that. And this is what Jesus would invite Peter and the disciples into as well, that no matter what happens in this world, no matter what even other people say about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Uh, I guess he was, he was a good teacher. He said some good things. Uh, he's just a nice idea. Nah, he was an invention by the early church to coerce people to submit to the empire. No, no, no. He is not any of that. He is the rock. He is the son of the living God. He is the resurrected king. He is the stabilizing presence, that refuge, that source of truth. And you know what? The gates of hell will never overcome it. And when you ground your life in that higher reality, you can have a peace and a security in your life that no one and no thing can ever take away from you. Even if circumstantially your life feels the same, or even if your life circumstantially gets worse, you have a rock available to you. And this is what Peter and the disciples would grow to realize and embrace. They would spend the rest of their lives preaching Jesus and living a life grounded in Jesus no matter what happened to them. In fact, if you look at church history, you will see that most of the disciples ended up li uh, living and preaching Christ, but ended up dying terrible deaths while never once regretting the cost because Jesus was the rock. Jesus was the rock. Jesus invited them to come follow him, to come and die because he had a better place to lead them to. Jesus built his church on the faith expressed on that ancient rock in Matthew 16. And for the last 2,000 years, the church of Jesus has gone forth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it has outlasted and weathered persecution of all kinds. The church has survived famine and distress and pandemics and global wars ever taking the gospel forward. It has not slowed down when meeting resistance, but it has been strengthened and pushed through it. It has not cowered in the face of hardship. And on the occasion when the church has slipped morally, every single time the church has repented again and again, renewed and refreshed by God's spirit to take the gospel forward. And now for us in 2023, we find ourselves enlisted into that same mission the baton has been handed to us. Just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, he will build his church and the gates of hell have never and will never prevail against it. 
And the reason we believe that lies in the fact that we follow a king who conquered the gates of hell itself. We believe in a man who climbed the rock of Calvary, who allowed sin and death to swallow him whole, who for three days was buried in a cave, but would later walk out and put the powers of evil to open shame. The gates of hell will never overcome the church because the gates of hell will never overcome our king. And I can't help but think one of the most freeing and beautiful things is is to live life upon that rock is that you don't have to figure it all out. You don't need to like get your life together to live the life upon the rock. You can rest in the finished work of Jesus. And that's how you can be led to the rock. And for what it's worth, uh, I don't know what your experience has been like the last three or four years. I don't know what even your holiday break was like for you personally. But I imagine for many of us in the room, you've had those moments of struggle Maybe you're in one right now and maybe you're experiencing this life on the ground reality for quite some time and it feels disorienting. It feels like you're shuffling from one thing to the next. Perhaps things have been especially difficult in your life recently and it's hard to get perspective and vision to sort of navigate all of this. On the other hand, I would imagine many of us in the room have also had seasons where you've experienced life on the rock, where you've had those seasons of close intimacy with Jesus, where you're grounded in reading scripture and prayer is just like breathing, where it's just become second nature to you, where even though things weren't ideal, you felt safe and secure because you were abiding with Jesus and with community through it all. And there was this inner peace that you had. And I would guess to say for the rest of us, you can have those life on the rock moments for a while, but then life just sort of happens, you know? Things aren't objectively good. They're not objectively bad. They're just, they're fine. They're fine. And you find yourself going through the motions of life just mentally on autopilot, and it's fine. You know, it's good. It's not good. It's not bad. It's it's whatever. And after a while, you realize you don't remember the last time you felt connected to the Lord or to others. Wherever you are this morning, Jesus is calling you now. Build your life upon him. He's inviting you to climb onto the rock of reality with him to see things clearly for what they are, to build your life on his life and his teachings, and to experience a life of stability and peace that only he can offer you. Which sounds great, but what does that like actually mean? Like, really, what does that actually mean to build your life on Jesus? That's a nice concept, but what does that mean? What does it mean come Monday morning when your alarm, you know, wakes you up from bed and you don't want to get out of bed? What's it mean like, what's it mean to build your life on Jesus? Well, the good news is we have huge insight as to how all of this looks in scripture. And that's why starting next week, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5. Or six through 11. We're going to be pulling some practical wisdom and insight as to what all of that means. And whenever it relates, we'll even be looking at the life of Peter and talk about the life lessons he learned to enable him to write what he wrote in 1 Peter 5, how he went through some hard lessons in life so that we don't have to go through it. And it's our hope that as we spend seven weeks looking through this passage together, that it would be really good and stabilizing for us. Um, starting next week in life groups, we're also going to be memorizing this passage together, which sounds like a lot, but we got seven weeks to figure it out. I believe in us. We can do it. Uh, We're going to be doing some spiritual practices along with it, but our hope is that 
as we unpack this more and more and memorize that, that it would get worked into our hearts and that our souls would just become more and more a place of stability and refuge because it's grounded in the work of Jesus. So I don't want to spoil anything for you. You have to come back next week. Uh, but I imagine it's going to be really, really helpful and practical for us. Um, I do want to do something a little bit different to end our time this morning, though. So what I want to do, since we're going to be studying this passage starting next week, uh, we're going to do something a little different, a little, yeah, unique to end our time. I'd invite you to stand with me, if you're able, as I read this passage over us. And then the band will come up. And as I, as you're standing and as I'm reading this over you, I just want you to, you know, listen to these words. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago, and the Spirit was working through him to communicate these truths to you right now. So just take a deep breath. I'd invite you, if you want to, to even close your eyes and to hear these words. This is the Spirit speaking to you, leading you to the rock that is Jesus. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.